Well, please keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I'm happy to be here today. I'll tell you, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, the first song that we sang, a song called um, Is He Worthy, began with the words, Do you feel the world is broken? And we said we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? And we said we do. And then um, the week began for me with bucket ministry in my house. And here's what I mean by bucket ministry. If we were at a youth camp, I would explain in more vivid detail. But let's suffice it to say we had a stomach virus in our house this week. And so for a couple days at the beginning of the week, I was the one doing the bucket ministry, which meant I would get a text message from somewhere in the house saying, I hear so-and-so doing, you can guess what, can you go and help them clean out their bowl or their bucket or whatever it might be? And so um, I went from room to room, just like, do you feel the world is broken? We do, right? And, you know, and like, and then, you know, I go and I'd sit down and I'd start, you know, I, I was working at home because my family was not well and even mom was not well, and when mom isn't well, like the world is really broken. And so when, when the world that broken, I'd get another text message in between trying to do like 20 minutes of sermon study, and, and then I'd go and I'd, I'd get another bucket and take it to clean it out, and I'd just be like, do you feel the shadows deep? And I really, really do. And the whole time I'm just praying, like, Lord, spare me, and I'm praying and I'm praying, and then the shadows deepened, <laughs> and I did. Um, and about halfway through the week, um, I'm trying, I'm, I'm doing some study and writing, and um, and then I needed bucket ministry um, in the middle of that. And so this was this was a grueling week for me. I'm happy to be on my feet. And for everybody who shook my hand on the way in the door, and you're now worried, like I'm really, really confident it's in the past for me. Um, so I don't think I'm spreading it today. Um, but, uh, but it was a hard week and I realized that's just my week and that's just my experience of, um, um, of some of the brokenness of this world that we live in. And I want to add very quickly that as significant as that is, and if you've had it, you understand as significant as that is, I realize that kind of that kind of experience of the brokenness and the darkness of this world is just kind of just kind of the shallow end of the pool. There's real death, um, real cancer. Real strains in marriages. Really deep experiences of depression. Really deeply felt experiences of anxiety. Not like the garden variety easy stuff, but really deep. Really deep experiences of being sinned against by other people in ways that haven't been addressed really deep awareness of sinfulness in our own hearts, really deep awareness of evil in the world around us. And so we continue to say, do we feel that the world is broken? We, we really do, actually. Do we feel the shadows deepen? We do. And then we come to church on Sunday and we hear a passage in which Jesus calls His people to live our lives in alignment with His mission. And I can feel in, in some of us, I can feel in my own heart even this question that says, how can we talk about living on mission 
when we feel the darkness and the brokenness so deeply. But if we ask ourselves the question, how can we talk about mission when there's so much brokenness and so much darkness all around us in the world? It reveals that we misunderstand something significant about the mission of Jesus Christ. You see, if we find ourselves thinking, how can we talk about mission with so much brokenness in the world? It reveals that we think about Jesus' sending on mission, the way that Jesus sent us on mission. It reveals that we think about that as if mission is just an optional add-on for discipleship that we only engage in when we feel happy and when we feel like everything's basically good in the world. But the fact is that Jesus did not send us out on mission only when we feel happy or only when we feel like things are basically good. No, quite the opposite. Christian mission is essential to Christian discipleship precisely because we know how deeply broken this world is. Christian mission is essential to Christian discipleship precisely because the shadows are deepening. Christian mission is essential to Christian discipleship precisely because as Christians we understand that sin and death and evil are a really big deal. Remember how the Sermon on the Mount began? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Does it sound like Jesus is sending out on mission people who are just happy and people who feel like everything's basically okay in the world? Jesus gets the darkness and the brokenness of this world and precisely because He understands how serious sin and death and darkness are. Precisely for that reason, Jesus sends His disciples to represent His kingdom of life and light. He sends us out and scatters us throughout the world on purpose to represent His kingdom of life and light precisely because of how broken and dark the world is. In order to understand this passage that Jill read a moment ago, we kind of need to start at the end of it, and then we'll come back and look at it a little more closely. But in verse 16, Jesus kind of makes plain what he's saying. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And then he moves away from metaphors and he just tells us what this whole thing is about. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you realize if you are a Christian that you are part of God's mission strategy in this world? If you're a disciple of Jesus, then God's mission strategy for spreading life and light as far as the curse is found, listen, is not primarily to do so by sending choirs of angels to announce the good news of Jesus as He did once on the night when Jesus was born. No, His intention is to spread light and life as far as the curse is found. You know how? Through people like you and me who have received His mercy and received His grace and experienced His loving embrace through Jesus Christ and have been brought out of darkness and into His marvelous light, He now sends us out to represent His kingdom of life and light to others. Not because we're perfect, not because we've got it all together, 
but because not because he needs us, but because in his kindness and in his mercy and in his grace and his love, he includes us in the great story of what he's accomplishing across the ages and around the world. He chooses to include us by sending us out as representatives of his kingdom. He chooses to include us in this plan for the name of God the Father to be glorified. How? By other people seeing. And by other people seeing what? Our good works. As Protestant Christians, sometimes we have a hard time with the idea of good works because sometimes we spend time trying really hard to explain an important idea that the New Testament teaches that we're not saved by our good works. But the New Testament that teaches we're not saved by our good works also teaches that we're saved for our good works. If that's a new idea to you, you can go and read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 later. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And so as Jesus explains the, this, as Jesus explains our part in His mission, He explains that our lives matter. And He explains that His intention is for us to go and live our lives wherever He sends us, wherever He plants us, in whatever workplaces we're in, in whatever neighborhoods we live in, in whatever city we're in, wherever we go for as long as we live. He sends us out to represent His kingdom, not only with our words, but even with our very lifestyles. Even in the way that we conduct ourselves, He sends us out to represent His kingdom by doing good things with our lives. By doing good things that will catch the attention or catch the notice of others and so perhaps lead them to glorify God. We'll come back more to some of this, but having said that, let me suggest to you three, three lessons that we learn here in this passage. And if If at times this message is a little rough, please remember I did a lot of my planning while I was also doing bucket ministry. And so as I was looking at my notes earlier today, there were a few points where I was like, what was I even trying to say to myself earlier this week? And maybe you can pray for me that it will come across more clearly than that. But So that others may see and glorify God. Here's one thing that Jesus tells us here in Matthew chapter 5. Let's keep the salt salty. In order that others may see and glorify God, let's keep the salt salty. Jesus begins this teaching about how our lives work on mission with this imagery or this illustration of salt. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And Jesus begins with an affirmation. If you're a disciple of Jesus... You're like salt. And we say, well, what does that mean, right? And it's an affirmation to be like salt. In, in Jesus' time and place, in fact, across the ages and around the world, salt has been a valuable part of human life. When Jesus was growing up, remember he was a real human being, he's fully God and fully human, He grew up with a mom who made food with salt probably every single day. As most of us grew up with somebody who made food for us probably with salt, even if it was a manufacturer who prepackaged that salt in packages and left it on a grocery store shelf for us. Most of us grew up and live our lives eating food made with salt every single day. Salt is good because it's tasty. Can I get an amen from somebody? Salt is good because it's tasty. It makes meat taste better. Not only because we like the salty flavor on the outside of the meat, but if you put salt on meat 12 hours before you make your steak, it actually gets into the meat and through a chemical reaction that my friend Nathan Krause can describe to you, it actually softens the steak or softens the chicken itself and makes it not only more flavorful, but more tender. Salt is good because it's tasty. 
And then there's what it does to potatoes. French fries, anybody? Let's go. Jesus says, Jesus says, I've left you in the world like salt on French fries, like salt on steak. I've left you in the world to add flavor. It's an affirmation. But more than just being tasty, salt is good because it has a preserving quality to it. When Jesus was growing up and his mom used salt, it wasn't always just to add flavor to the food, especially in, in generations before refrigerators and before deep freezers. If you got a big chunk of meat to feed your family, I mean, we still understand today, if you leave meat out on the counter especially in a relatively hot place like the Middle East or something like that. If you leave meat out on the counter unrefrigerated for a week, what's going to happen? It's going to decay. Bacteria is going to start to grow. And you're going to end up feeling like I felt in the middle of the week if you eat it, right? And so what can you do in order to slow that process of decay and in order to resist the, the progress of that bacteria that's leading to a kind of death eating up the food in your house? You cake it with meat. And so when Jesus was growing up, he would have watched his mom cake meats with salt just to preserve them so that they wouldn't go bad. Salt is good because it's tasty. Salt is good because it preserves other things and resists the decaying effect in this fallen world. And probably related to that fact, salt was also a symbol of purity in the ancient world. And so, for example, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, salt is, is sometimes called for to be put on meat. Why? Because it's a sign that we're not offering God rancid old stuff that we didn't want anyway. It's a sign of something that purifies. And I think, as best as I can tell, and I want to be honest, as I've told you before, there are some things I'm pretty sure about in the Bible, and there are some things I'm not as sure about What exactly does salt symbolize here? I'm not exactly sure, but I think it's some combination of all of these things. We're called to add something of a heavenly flavor in this world as Jesus' people. Wherever we're placed, whatever neighborhood we live in, whatever workplace you're in, whatever relationships God leads you to, Listen, Jesus gives you this affirmation. You are here in this world to add a heavenly flavor in your relationships and in your workplace and in your school and in your daily life. You're here not only to add a heavenly flavor, you're here as the salt of the earth to resist decay, to resist the effects of the fall here in this world in whatever ways you can as a sign of God's kingdom entering into this world. And not only that, you're called to be a sign of a certain kind of purity. None of us do this perfectly. But Jesus says, I put a kind of purity in you so that you are different than the world. Are you perfectly different? No. Am I perfectly different? No. But when Jesus says you're the salt of the world, he's saying that if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're distinct from the world. You've been set apart. You're different in certain kind of ways. There's something that should be different in a heavenly kind of way than the neighbors who live around you. There's an affirmation here in Matthew chapter 5.13. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then you are like salt. There's a purity in you. There's a purity that can help resist the effects of the fall and a purity that can add a heavenly flavor wherever you go. But in addition to this, in addition to this kind of positive call here, in addition to this affirmation, There's also a warning here in Matthew 5.13, right? The warning goes like this. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
Um, I read something this week from a pastor who um, fell into a trap that probably many pastors have fallen into over time at one point in his life, and he started kind of telling people, you know, like, salt can lose its saltiness. Be careful. Because that's what Jesus says, right? And then a chemist came to him who was there in attendance, and the chemist pointed out salt is a very stable compound, actually. It stays salt. <laughs> salt stays salt. Is this true, Ray? Yes, that's right. <laughs> I got if Ray says it's true, it's true. He knows. And uh, it's a relatively stable chemical compound. Salt doesn't magically become some other substance. So in what way can salt lose its saltiness? There's probably only one way that salt loses its saltiness by being mixed in with too many other impurities. It's not that something is salt and then if you just leave it on the counter too long, poof, it becomes something else and it's no longer salt. But you can take salt, which is tasty and which can have a preserving effect and which can... uh, which can, which can uh, also you know, be a purifying for things. You could take this salt and if you mix it in with too many other things, if you effectively dilute this good gift of salt, what happens? Well, that salt, which was good, it loses its effect by being mixed with too many impurities. And this is the warning that Jesus gives his disciples about mission. There's an affirmation. There's something good if you're a disciple of Jesus. There's something good that you're called to go and represent in this world. But be warned, if your heart has too many impurities mixed in with it, you can lose some of your saltiness. If someone were to ask you, what's the biggest obstacle to Christian mission? I wonder if some of us would say, well, the culture is the big obstacle. What's the biggest obstacle to Christian mission? That's how hard people's hearts are. What's the biggest obstacle? It's how angry my neighbors get. Jesus doesn't, at least in this passage, seem to think that other people or the culture, are the biggest hurdle in Christian mission. He seems to suggest that the biggest hurdle in Christian mission is us. It's our ability to have mixed motives that hold us back from being a pure witness in the world, that hold us back from preserving and resisting the fall out in our community that hold us back from spreading the flavor of heaven throughout our neighborhood and our city and our workplace and our circles of relationships. Sometimes we make decisions to prioritize protecting my money instead of giving generously in ministry. It's not popular in American culture to talk about greed as an impure motive. But Jesus has no problem talking about greed as a very impure motive. Brothers and sisters, we should be warned as disciples of Jesus to be on guard against the ways that greed might lead us to resist good, doing good with our lives and giving generously to those in need around us. Selfishness is another impure motive when we make it all about me and what I feel comfortable with instead of following the Spirit of God in what He's leading us into, is this not an obstacle to mission and ministry? Sometimes we find ourselves burnt out and exhausted. I've found myself burnt out and exhausted sometimes, to be honest. Sometimes we find ourselves burnt out and exhausted because we devoted ourselves to everything under the sun Except for, except for resting in the presence of God in prayer. And as a result, we find ourselves burnt out and empty and running on fumes and not much good for representing God's good intention 
for good works, good deeds, good things to shine through our lifestyles. You know what keeps us from being salty, flavorful, preserving, purifying witnesses in our world? Very often, it's our own hearts. And so, one of the ways that Matthew 5.13 hits us is as an affirmation. You are the salt of the earth. And one of the ways is as a challenge. Be careful not to lose your saltiness by getting too many impurities mixed in. And so maybe there's even an appropriate moment of reflection and confession for some of us before the Lord right now. Maybe Jesus is addressing some of us very directly and saying, be careful about those mixed motives that are holding you back from God's intention for your life to represent the kingdom of heaven so that others may see and glorify God. Here's the first thing we need to learn from this passage. Let's keep the salt salty. Let's keep that good flavor of heaven, resisting the fall, purifying influence. Let's keep that what it's meant to be. But here's a second point that we get from this passage, so that others may see and glorify God. Let's keep the salt salty. And secondly, so that others may see and glorify God, let's keep the light shining. Jesus moves from the picture of salt to the picture of light. And he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light in all the house. You notice the affirmation here once again? There is light in you if you've believed in Jesus Christ. And it's not just the light of being somebody created in the image of God. It's the light of somebody who is united with the one who says, I am the light of the world. If you've trusted in Him, then your life is joined together and united with Jesus Christ. And His light now lives within you and His light is meant to spread out from you. You notice that both salt and light are spreading kinds of things. Salt doesn't do a whole lot of its good while we keep it in a pile in a cupboard. It does its good while we spread it out and put it to use. Light can't help but spread out. By its very nature, it moves outward to reach every corner of the place where it is placed. Light And salt are meant to spread. And so our good deeds, our lives of love for our neighbors, our lives that represent the kingdom of heaven are meant to spread a witness far and wide into every corner and every crevice of the places where God has planted us. And this is one of the wonderful things about being united with Jesus Christ is that His light shines even in the darkest of places and even in the darkest of times. That song I was mentioning earlier, do you feel the world is broken? Yes, we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? Yes, we do. But do you know that all the dark will not stop the light from getting through? So as we feel the darkness of this life and its sufferings, and as we feel the darkness of evil and the evil one, and as we feel the darkness of sins we've experienced and sins we've committed, and as we feel the darkness of sin yet within, 
We don't give up and say, it's too dark. No, we say Jesus is the light of the world. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not, will not, cannot overcome it. So brothers and sisters, as disciples of Jesus, the darker it gets, the more urgent it is that our light shine. There's an affirmation here. You are the light of the world. But there's also, there's also a, a bit of a warning here in this passage. Just as with the salt one, there was an affirmation. You're like salt. But be careful that it doesn't lose its saltiness, which leads to a place of kind of checking our hearts and guarding against impure motives. With the light, there's an affirmation. Disciples, you are the light of the world. Why? Because you're united together with Jesus. His light shines through you now. You are the light of the world. You're like a city on a hill. And a city is not just one individual candle. A city is a whole collection of lights that working together creates kind of a cumulative uh, mass of lights greater than greater than any one of them on their own, right? You all, church, you all disciples, Jesus is saying, you're like, a, you're like the light of the world. You're like a city on a hill. You're like a lamp in the middle of a house. But there's a danger. People should not light a lamp and then put it under a basket. It's such a ridiculous image that I've never like, I don't know, I've heard a lot of sermons on this passage and people try to say silly things about it. Like, the silly things don't work. Why? Because the picture is so ridiculous, it speaks for itself. You don't try to light a lamp and then cover it up. You light it for the purpose of letting that light spread. The lamp is lit so that the light can get out. And Jesus is saying to his followers, I've placed my light in you so that the light can get out. So that it can shine. Jesus calls us not only to salt the earth through good deeds and through lives that represent his kingdom, he calls us also to shine his light. Through good deeds, through doing good, through living in a way that represents His kingdom. And so in a way, if the salt metaphor had this affirmation, you're the salt, and then this kind of warning, be careful that the impurities don't stop you. The light metaphor works in a similar way, but kind of in a more positive direction, I think. If the salt metaphor leads us to check inwardly what impurities might keep me from spreading the kingdom of heaven wherever I go, the light metaphor speaks positively and it says, get moving. Get out there. Go do something with your life. The light metaphor says, Jesus is the light of the world and you're united with Him. So go and shine that light. Is there somebody who's poor? Help them to shine the light. Is there somebody who's hurting? Bless them. Is there somebody who's forgotten and overlooked? Reach out to them. Is there a neighbor that you don't even know? Start by learning their name. Can you love your neighbors? And shine your light in your neighborhood, one seasoned with salt, tasty, taste of heaven kind of conversation at a time. You know what Paul says in Colossians chapter 4 to the church? Make the best use of the time. Uh, Being prepared to, I'm messing it up completely here. Again, bucket ministry and all of that, right? If If you will bear with me for a moment. But he says, walk in wisdom toward out.
making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So one seasoned with salt kind of conversation at a time. Can you ask a a family with foster kids if there's anything that you can do to help? Because usually there is. Or could you ask any mom with little kids if there's a way you could help? Because usually there is. What if we made it a priority to not ignore the elderly? That's probably a countercultural way to express mercy in our culture, one that not many people pay much attention to. What if you could start mentoring with one of our ministry partners? Sign up to be a friendship partner with World Relief. If you honestly cannot think of one way to let your light shine and you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus and you can't think of even one way to let your light shine, to let the light of Jesus shine through your lifestyle, to shine through doing good things, here's my dare to you. I dare you to talk to Josh Anderson and tell him, (laughs) and tell him, I can't think of even one person to go and love and bless this week. Not because he's going to rebuke you, but because he'd love to help you meet some people who could use a blessing or could use some help or could use a hand in one way or another. If you need some equipping, Josh Anderson is planning to probably do a two-month discipleship workshop this fall specifically on learning to love the least of these in our community. Maybe there are five or ten people in this room right now and you just need to decide in your heart, I'm going to let my light shine this week, but I'm already deciding I'm going to be in that discipleship workshop to learn to spread the light of Christ by loving the least of these in this community around me. There are a variety of ways that you can go and let your light shine, but here's the thing. Instead of just sitting back And saying, as we rightly will in some ways, what in my heart, what impurities are keeping me from getting out there? There's also a dimension of salt and light where we just got to start taking some steps and start doing some things in our neighborhoods and in our workplace and in our city. Doing good. Representing our good shepherd himself. Why? So that others may see and glorify our father in heaven. I don't know how helpful this is, but at some point in the middle of bucket ministry, I dropped this in here, and there's a slide for it. So, Peter was one of the disciples listening while Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And years later, Peter wrote a letter about discipleship to churches like ours. And here's part of his instruction to those churches. Peter says to church members, y'all are a chosen race. Southern translation, but it's more accurate because it's plural. Y'all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellency of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. What is Peter doing there? He's he's doing gospel-centered ministry. He's starting with, here's what's already true by the grace of God in your life. Today, you already are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Today you already are called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. If you're joined with Jesus, you're already living in the light, Peter says. But there's something more now in this gospel-centered ministry of the Apostle Peter. As somebody who's been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light, let's go and proclaim that. Let's go and tell somebody else about it. And then he goes on in words that sound like he had the Sermon on the Mount in mind. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Don't lose your saltiness, Paul, Peter says. Then he goes further. Keep your conduct among the nations honorable. 
There's a negative kind of protecting thing we're doing. Guard your heart against impurities. But there's a positive. Get out there with honorable conduct. Why? So that when they speak evil of you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your, there are good deeds again. They may see the good stuff that you're doing. And so glorify God on the day of visitation. Listen, Jesus' vision is that his disciples, like you and me, called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, will live our lives proclaiming his excellencies and spreading the light of his kingdom wherever we go so that others may see and join us in glorifying God. So that others may see and glorify God, let's keep the salt salty. Let's guard against impurity. So that others may see and glorify God, let's keep the light shining. So that others will see. But a third point I want to make is this. Let's keep in mind the goal. Let's keep in mind the goal. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let's think about that time when Jesus was first speaking these words to that congregation back then. It's safer that way. We don't need to deal with the conviction ourselves, right? So let's just do that for a minute. We'll do the safe thing. Let's imagine back then Jesus is preaching this Sermon on the Mount. And there are a few groups of people there. There are the disciples who have already kind of bought into this Jesus stuff. They're already following. They're already tasting the light of Jesus Christ. And they're already following and spreading his light. But there's also the crowds Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 tells us, and there in the crowds there's this mixture of people. Some of them are people that the book of Matthew will describe as people who are sinners, tax collectors. People who are known to give their lives to all kinds of sins. and People who are known to devote their lives to greed as tax collectors working for the empire. There are sinners and tax collectors listening as Jesus teaches this stuff about being salt of the earth and letting light shine. There's also another group of people there in the crowds, not only sinners and tax collectors on the one hand, But on the other hand, there are some Sadducees and Pharisees listening in while Jesus says this stuff about living as salt and light in this world. And I want to ask you to consider for a minute, remember this is a safe exercise, it's just about people back then, okay? No conviction necessary yet. I want to invite you to consider for a minute... How do sinners and tax collectors hear the Sermon on the Mount? And how do Sadducees and Pharisees hear this stuff about salt and light? My guess is that as sinners and tax collectors hear Jesus talking about being pure like salt and representing the kingdom of heaven like light, sinners and tax collectors say, I can't. I haven't, I'm not, I can't. On the other hand, Sadducees and Pharisees hear Jesus' teaching about living as salt and light, and how do they hear this stuff? My guess is it goes something like this. Oh, I got it. Oh, I got it. I'm living a pure and distinct life already. I'm living to shine the light of God's word wherever I go. And let me ask you, which of these represents Jesus' intended response? 
See, Jesus, as He's teaching about living as salt and light, doesn't want us to simply shake our heads like sinners and tax collectors and then walk away unchanged by the Gospel. Neither does He want us like Sadducees and Pharisees to nod our heads and say, I got this, I'm good. You see, what sinners and tax collectors and Sadducees and Pharisees all have in common before meeting the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is they are all stuck on themselves. Sinners and tax collectors living their lives for me, myself, and I. Whether it's sexual sins, or drunkenness sins and partying sins, or whether it's tax collector kind of selfishness and financial self-centeredness. It's all about me. And how about the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Sure, I'll do the good stuff. In fact, I'll give all kinds of money. But as Jesus is going to pick up in just a couple paragraphs in the Sermon on the Mount... There's a way to give money to others, which is a good work, a good thing to do, something that Jesus encourages to give generously. But there's a way to give generously that's really about, hey, you see what I'm doing? Jesus is neither calling for the self-centeredness that says, I'm going to follow my desires, whatever they may be, nor the kind of self-centeredness that says, I'll do good stuff as long as others see and gl- see my good works and glorify me. Jesus is here to liberate us from that kind of self-centeredness. And whether you've spent more of your life living a sinners and tax collectors kind of self-centeredness or whether you've spent more of your life living a Sadducees and Pharisees kind of self-centeredness, that is to say, whether you've spent more of your life living in a kind of self-centeredness that says, I'm going to do what I want when I want, or whether you're living in a kind of self-righteousness that says, I'll do good things as long as others see my good works and glorify me. Either way, this self-centeredness is precisely what Jesus came to liberate us from. What he's calling us here to is not a further expression of pharisaical good works. Nor is it a call to just go and live, live however you feel like it. Jesus is calling us to something different by his grace. A way of discipleship that is not stuck on me, myself, and I. But a way of discipleship that has been set free by Jesus. Why? So that we can seek the good of others and the glory of God. Even Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a liberating ransom for many. And this is the very goal that Jesus makes plain here in verse 16. The goal is not that we go and become good people. The goal is that we live as redeemed people who showed up at the feet of Jesus saying, I'm a spiritual beggar. Poor in spirit. And I'm mourning the darkness and the lostness and the brokenness of the world around me. And so, Lord Jesus, would you shine your light and give your life to me because I desperately need it. And then we continue living our lives as one redeemed person telling other people about the redemption that we've found, as one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. In Him. Living our lives and doing good and living in a way that spreads the taste and the purity of the kingdom of God. Living our lives in a way that shines light into others' lives. Not so others see and glorify me, but so that others may see and glorify our Father in heaven. 
Well, somehow or other, we need to wrap this up, right? And here's what I want to do. Instead of just giving you my takeaway, kind of, here's what I think. I want to read something to you and invite you to consider if these might be some of your own words as well. I've mentioned before in 1974, Billy Graham and John Stott and Rene Padilla and other people who cared about evangelism and global missions, they gathered evangelical 150 nations around the world to discuss evangelism and Christian mission. And there at that 1974 gathering with delegates from 150 nations, they created a statement known as the Lausanne Covenant. And I love it because as we get close to the 50th anniversary of when they wrote it, it's as relevant as ever. It's not just my perspective on Christian mission. It's a perspective on Christian mission that leaders from 150 different nations signed together. And it begins with a powerful paragraph that I want to share with you and perhaps consider if these words fit you as well. The first paragraph of the Zong Covenant goes like this. We affirm our belief in the one eternal God, creator and Lord of the world, Father, Son and Holy Spirit who governs all things according to the purpose of his will. He has been calling out from the world a people for himself. And sending his people back into the world to be his servants and his witnesses for the extension of his kingdom, the building up of Christ's body and the glory of his name. And then this next sentence. We confess with shame, not meaning a shame where we beat ourselves up over and over, but in kind of a right recognition that we haven't done everything that Jesus called us to do as salt and light. We confess that we have often denied our calling and failed in our mission by becoming conformed to the world or withdrawing from it, by losing our saltiness or by not shining our light, as it were. And the Luzon Covenant continues, yet we rejoice That even when borne by earthen vessels, the gospel is still a precious treasure. To the task of making that treasure known in the power of the Holy Spirit, we desire to dedicate ourselves anew. I wonder if these are words that fit where your heart is as Jesus is speaking to you. I wonder if these words might reflect where we are as a church family as Jesus is speaking to us and saying, you are the salt of the world. Don't lose your saltiness. You're the light of the world. Your light is there to shine. Here's a goal that others may see and glorify our Father in heaven. And so we rejoice that even when born by earthen vessels, the gospel is still a precious treasure. And so to the task of making that treasure known in the power of the Holy Spirit, we desire to dedicate ourselves anew.